KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I guess I'm most proud of the graduation rate that we had, and players went on to really do some really good things afterwards. You know, I've had a Rhodes Scholar play for me, tons of nurses, doctors, lawyers. That's cool to me if I don't know about something, and I can always call somebody that knows about it that played for me. And our guest this week is Harry Peretta, who spent more than four decades as the head coach of the women's basketball team at Villanova University, retired following the 2019-2020 season, won more than 780 games at the helm of the Wildcats. And coach, thanks so much for taking the time. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. So retirement, how's it treating you? How are you enjoying it? Really a lot more than I thought. Um, it's amazing. Like I'm an exercise freak, so having a lot more time to exercise has really been cool. And um, it's amazing how you can find time to fill your day. Um, I volunteered at a St. Bernadette's grade school last year, uh, an hour a day for lunch. So it just was amazing how you found time during the day to fill your time. Talk about the decision to retire. Was had you been looking at that season? The 2019-2020 season for a while, is that will probably be it? Was it something that kind of came up as maybe you just didn't have the the drive that you had before? How did it come together? Well, what happened was, you know, my kids were in college. I, I tried to, I planned on trying to stay till my second son, Michael, graduated. But to be honest with you, my body just started wearing out. I, I had gotten sick for a couple years and uh, my body just was wearing down and I just didn't feel from a physical standpoint that I might not be able to make, hold up, you know, and uh, and Villanova was great about it. You know, they said, hey, you know, why don't you go ahead and do it? And they actually they actually uh, paid me for, for my my last year on my contract, which they didn't have to do. And uh, and and with the COVID, I wound up not I was supposed to be like a fundraiser and stuff. And we didn't even we didn't have a chance to do anything. So uh, it kind of like that's how it kind of worked itself out. So growing up, was basketball always your top sport or were you a kid that played whatever was in season? Well, I, I was in grade school. I tried to play with whatever was in season. And uh, and then I just got I just got hung up on basketball that my seventh and eighth grade year. I played at a school called Our Lady of Angels, which was in West Philly. And we moved after that. And I went to Bonner. I didn't really know anybody there. And I tried out for the team and I was able to make the freshman team and all. And um, th- that's how it kind of worked itself out. I started playing basketball a lot. And then when I went to college, the best thing ever happened to me was getting hurt, hurt my ankle really badly and uh, couldn't play anymore in my freshman year. And I was going to try to play again. And the coach came to me, he goes, look, I know you want to be a coach down the road. And the head coach said to me, why don't you be the assistant JV coach in college and my assistant varsity coach? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. So that's what happened. And then my junior year in college, the, the head JV coach left. So this guy gave me the job of coaching the JV boys and assistant varsity my junior year in college. So that's it wound up being the best thing ever happened to me, getting hurt and getting into coaching then. It seems like, you know, a lot of guys, they get hurt and they can't play anymore and it's devastating for them. Was there any time where you were like, I can't believe this happened or was that door opening to coaching did that really kind of take all that away 
I think you're right. That that I think it just took it all away. I I mean I was I'm I'm a, I'm a Division three basketball player. I wasn't going anywhere playing basketball, and I just said, you know, this is what my career path I wanted to be was a coach. I wanted to be a high school coach actually, and um, I said, man, I can't pass up this opportunity to get this much experience. You know, when I graduated from college, I had two years of coaching under my belt at a college level, which most people didn't have at that time. You get that work at Lycoming. And I was going to ask you about this, about Villanova, but how difficult was it? I don't know if difficult is the word challenging being in a, a you know a role as an authority when you're basically the same age as the, the players you're coaching. I know it. At the beginning, it was kind of a little bit rough, you know, but kind of worked it out where, hey, I, I, we all have to do a job here, players, coaches, and kind of worked it out where, hey, everybody just stay within what they what they have to do, and, and you got it done. So you end up getting the job at Villanova in 1978. You're 22 years old. How in the world does a 22-year-old get a, a, a head coaching job at that age at a school like Villanova? Well, it, it was really another – break that I got. Um, I applied for the job and first of all, it was part-time at the, at the time. So I applied for the job. I get an interview. Well, at the time I didn't know the person that was interviewing me, her name was Marianne uh, Steenrod. She was the women's athletic director. I didn't know that her husband had played at Lycoming before I did. And it was unbelievable. So now she knows the head coach, Dutch Birch, and he gives me a great recommendation and at the time, like I said before, I had more experience than the majority of people that were applying for the job, even though I was 22. I had had two years of college coaching experience and no one else really did. And at the time, you got to remember, the job was part time. So it wasn't a ton of applicants as you would think it would be now. So that's how I wind up getting it. So when you take over, what are you inheriting? What is women's basketball at Villanova like in 78? It was it's different. They had they had what was called. Um, Oh, God. A small college and major college, it was called. And at the time, it was considered to be a small college uh, job in terms of, uh, I guess, ability. So, um, we, no, I got in there. I got I got lucky. I was able to recruit some local players. Uh, back in that time, you know, recruiting was kind of regional. So if you were a really good player, you might be able to keep that player at home, which now is a lot harder to do. So what happened was I had gotten a couple players to stay home that lived in the area. And then all of a sudden it took off. And then by the time I was there, I think in my, I think it was in my fourth year, we actually went to the final four because we had all these local kids on the team. So it, it was really weird the way it was. Like you couldn't do that today. It wouldn't work, work it ways. It wouldn't work itself out that way today. Uh, but in, back then, be, be, it, small college, major college, wasn't a big jump. And you recruited all these local kids, so you were able to get away with it. I think you went 17-8 and eight your first year. You mentioned in 82 you go to the Final Four. Um, did having success at that young age, was, was there any points where you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this, or did it just feel natural? Well, it, you always kind of always feel like, I can't believe this is happening, you know? You always feel that way. And uh, especially at the time, because <clears throat> when we went to the Final Four, there were established teams like Rutgers, uh, Stephen F. Austin, you know, Cheney was big time then. Uh, it was just different. You know, like you can't, like you're saying to yourself, I, I can't believe everything's falling into place this way. And you mentioned that final four. I think that was a year or two before 
Villanova went officially Division One for women's basketball. Was it still AIAW then? It was AIAW, which was Division One. It's just AIAW, and you had the NCAA. It just split that year. That the that year that we went to the Final Four was the first year that it split, and there were comparable teams on both sides. Like in our Final Four, I think it was Rutgers, Stephen F. Austin. I can't remember the other schools. Um, and Cheney was in the other Final Four, which we had played that year. So they were pretty comparable to each other at that time. And then after that, the NCAA kind of took over. So what were you like as a young coach? I mean, obviously you're having success, but how would you kind of describe your style, the way you interacted with the players, stuff like that? I, I you know, I kind of did what I always did my whole career. I was friendly with the players on the team, um, tried to be honest with them as much as I could. I was probably – had too big of a mouth back then too, like I did now, but the interaction with the kids, I think is what kind of made it special because like you had said, we were kind of like the same age, but we all kind of understood what our roles were, which I thought was really cool. And I don't know, it's a lot harder to do today, I think, than it was 40 some years ago. And just, I want to backtrack that the ankle injury you had, is that something that if you had it today, it wouldn't be nearly as big a deal? Or was it something that was going to be kind of catastrophic no matter what? Well, I don't think it would have been catastrophic as much today. I could have played again, but you know, I was still having problems with it. And then when the coach approached me and said that, I said, you know something, I don't see the reason in what am I going to, what am I going to accomplish, you know, by playing division three basketball, I can accomplish more by coaching division three basketball. So you were part-time when you start your career. Uh, you must be doing something else to, to, to mm -hmm. make a living, right? Yeah. I was, I, first year I was actually uh, was a laborer for a, a guy that you know, does cement work. So that was the first year. And I was telling the story about the first time I ever met Dave Gavitt, who founded the Big East. I had just come from work and we were at practice and Roly Massimino was bringing – brought Dave Gavitt out and Mike Trangisi to meet me. And I still have my work boots on from the day, you know, shoveling cement and everything. So it was kind of really a cool thing. Like, you know, you go from laying cement in the morning and then in the afternoon I go to practice. And then the first time I met Gavitt, he's looking at me like, are you kidding me? You know? So it was just so different back then, but fun. How much of a challenge was it just logistically as your part time, but you got, it's not just, practice you got to travel for games i'm sure there was some overnights and stuff like right. that how tough was that just uh getting everybody to sign off on you missing work and stuff like that yeah the first two years were the first year was easy because the guy i worked for was he was independent contractor the second year i actually taught school i taught i had a job i taught at st monica's down in south philadelphia that was a little harder because i had i had to tell them ahead of time when i was going to be missing you know missing days and also getting out some days I had, to, I had to let my class out early because I had to either get to practice or get to a game. So the second year was a lot harder than the first. But I luckily, again, the people that were around me worked with me. How long until the, the job at Villanova became full time? Third year became full time. I remember because I was making um, I was making eighty five hundred teaching and four four thousand coaching. And then I remember Villanova offered me a job to at 12.5 and I thought I hit the jackpot. So um, I wound up, that's when I became full-time, but it's, it's just really interesting that the dynamics of it then. How much of a 
hand did you have in those early days in the schedule, stuff like that? Or was it just you were just handed this is who you're playing this year? I had a hand in it, you know, just like you do now. You know, we would go through it, you know, this over the summer, try to schedule a decent schedule. So, you know, I always had most of the control over that. So let's talk about when you get when it goes from AIAW to the NCAA running everything mm-hmm. to the to the layperson does life. Does it look any different? Does anything change or is it just uh, everybody's under that same umbrella? Nothing really changes, but the rules. Um, and then you go under the big umbrella, the NCAA. A lot of the rules, not a lot of the rules, but some of the recruiting rules were different. AIAW, you were allowed out to go see players more. NCAA had more confined, you know, and when you can get out and go recruiting, but really wasn't that much of a difference. So I'm curious, you're, you spend 42 years as the head coach at Villanova. I don't think anybody takes a job, you know, when they're 22 and says, I'm going to be here for the rest of my career. Do you remember, was there a certain point where you kind of took stock and said, Hey, you know what? I got it good here. And it's going to take me a lot to get out of here. I, I think I could ride this one for a long time. Yeah. I remember actually the, um, it was probably like 19, maybe 19 years uh, before I retired. Uh, I had a really, I had a really good team. Trish Jaleen was local and that was a team that beat UConn, but we hadn't done that yet. And um, a school came after me. You know, the money was really remarkable. And um, I, re- I remember it vividly because um, I, you know, went up, went up to see the president of Villanova. His name was Father Dobbin to talk about, you know, what was going on and all. And uh, I remember, like, as I was talking to him, I said, Father, you know, I'm, you know, I'm at a crossroads. I don't really know what to do. And I wasn't talking to him as much as he was my boss, as if he was my friend, you know. And. I said to him at one point in the meeting, I said, Father, you know, what do you think? Like, tell me what you, what you really think. And this is a true story. He says, Harry, he goes, I think you should go back to your office. He goes, I don't think you're going anywhere. So I just got up and left. I said, I'll see you tomorrow, Father. And that was it. And when I did that, I went back to the office. My wife was waiting for me and Vince Castro was were waiting for me. And that was the point I felt like I never would leave Villanova. It was just like a special place for me. And, uh, you know, that that was the exact time that I thought that it, it, I would never leave. Talk to Lemmy a little bit about your coaching style with regards to what you guys would run on offense. Kind of describe it and tell me where you what is it based in? Who were kind of your influences? Well, we run, we run a basic motion offense and it's it's a basically um, it's, people call it equal opportunity offense. Um I call it an offense that we try to help get players who are not as talented shots and the players that are talented, we help them a little bit, but they can also help themselves. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of like the philosophy of it. And, um, and I basically had that philosophy because I was always very average player. I was never super talented. And I felt like we have to run some kind of offense to help players help themselves. And that's kind of how it all started with me. And that was my coaching style. And hopefully if we had great players, great players would just make everyone else better. And um, I remember, I don't know if you saw that special on Michael Jordan that they had done ESPN. Mm -hmm. One of the things that stood out to me was that a lot of times very talented players don't want to play in motion offenses because they think it's equal opportunity. And I remember in that special, 
when Jackson took over the coaching at Chicago, they viewed the triangle as equal opportunity offense. And Jordan was a little skeptical of that. Well, the reality is no one, there is no such thing as equal opportunity. I mean, if, if you're a talented player, you're going to stand out. And that kind of reminded me when Jordan bought into it, he, he was able to help the other players get better. And the offense itself didn't stand in Jordan's way. I, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that's kind of like what I thought of when I saw the special. And that was my philosophy towards coaching was to, hey, if you're a great player, you can do all these things within the offense, but we want to use the offense to help the ones that are not as talented. I'm curious, when you become a head coach at such a young age, and you mentioned you stayed local recruiting, was recruiting overwhelming to you at first, or was it something you always felt like you had a knack for being able to see players who not just were good, but were good at what you wanted to do? Well, it, it was kind of, yeah, kind of like a twofold thing. One is I thought recruiting was easier than it really was because at the time I told you local players played at local schools. When that started to change, that's when recruiting got really hard because then you had to go out and find players different parts of the country. Um, I don't think it's hard for a coach to pick out players who fit their style of coaching. I think that's not a real hard thing to do. Now, uh, getting them to come to your school might be a hard thing to do, but I think you can always find kids that fit your style. But like I said, at the beginning, I thought recruiting was easier than it really was. And then I found out when things started changing and everything became more national, I found that it was a lot harder to do. Did you enjoy the, co- the, the, the recruiting process or was it a necessary evil? I, you know, it, it, it was kind of a little bit of both. I tried to make myself enjoy it because I looked at it as even if I didn't get certain kids, I got a chance to either travel to a different part of the country, meet people from a different part of the country. And it's amazing how many friends you make all around the country. Cause sometimes even if we didn't get the kid, you, you kind of stayed in touch with their family and stuff. Cause you got to know them through the recruiting process. So when we talk about your success, you mentioned that Final Four team uh, in 82. What was that ride like, getting going there? And was that a team that, if I talked to you prior to the season, you would have said, I don't know if you say we're going to be a Final Four, but you would say we're going to be really good. We got a chance to do something special. I, yeah, I knew we were pretty good. Um, I had had some local I, – I had gotten um, Kathy Beisel, who was one of the best pl- – who was – top three or four player in Philadelphia. Uh, the, the following year, I got Nancy Bernhardt, who was one of the top players in the Philadelphia area. Stephanie Gately or Stephanie Vanderslice at the time was a top player out of uh, Ocean City High School. And she had recruit. She had transferred from Delaware. She had gone to Delaware first, transferred to Villanova. And then we had another kid named Lisa Ortlip, who was a very good player. So I knew that those kids were pretty good. I knew they were pretty good. And what's the ride like that season? It was really cool. Like winning the games were really cool. The only thing that was funny about it, the AIAW Final Four was in Philly. It was at the Palestra. So we didn't get we didn't get to travel anywhere. So, but uh, it was kind of cool beating some of the teams to get there. You've had a lot of great players come through. And I think maybe the greatest you had that came right after that Final Four team, Shelly Pennyfather. Tell me a little bit about her. Well, that's a unique story. Um, this was a kid who who normally would not go to a Villanova. She would go to either a Tennessee, a UConn, you know, a Louisville, a, a, 
uh, South Carolina. But because Shelly was so religious, she only looked at three schools. They were Providence, Holy Cross, and Villanova. So because of that one aspect, we automatically had a shot at her. And, um, you know, somehow, some way, her and I really hit it off. And um, we both, both of us had a devotion to the Blessed Mother. I say the rosary every day. And um, we kind of hit it off that way. And she wound up coming to Villanova, which was really cool. School's all-time leading scorer. What made her such a special player? Like what, for people that, you know, weren't able to see her, what made her who she was? Well, she was extremely uh, unselfish. Uh, she very intelligent, knew how to play, very talented. And to give you a description, the, the late Dave Gavitt called her Larry Bird of women's basketball. He's like, that's the kind of player she was, could shoot it, could handle it, could rebound, could pass it, uh, made everybody around her better. So that that's kind of best description I can give you that, you know, she was like a, she was like a Larry Bird of women's basketball. And after she got done playing basketball, uh, she had a calling, became a nun. Mm-hmm. She uh, came back from Japan. She went to Japan and uh, they made her the highest played women's basketball player in the world in 1991. And um, when she came back from there, she just came in to see me and said, look, um, I, I have this calling that I want to join this order, this, this religious order, which was a poor Claire's. And, you know, at first I was kind of taken back because I thought she would be a religious, but I didn't know whether she would be that strict of an order. I mean, this order, you know, you don't, you don't, talk, you only talk, I think, for an hour a day in, in, in a community. You don't eat any meat. You sleep four hours at a time. You sleep on a bed of straw. Um, I just didn't think it would be that, that she would go into that kind of order where you don't really see anybody. Um, everything they do is based off the power of prayer. So, we went down to the monastery and uh, we met mother superior. She took me with her and uh, one thing led to another and she wound up uh, being a cloistered nun. How often do you have contact with her? Yeah, that's, that was one of the special things. Like I managed to make a deal with mother superior. I'm the only non-family member that gets to see her once a year, her friends that whatever we all saw her two years ago, she had a 25th anniversary we actually could uh, see her then and talk to her, but normally only her family gets to see her three times a year. And I, and I was able to go uh, and be, you know, see her once a year since she went into the place. You mentioned the 2002, 2003 team that, that beat UConn. Uh, and that's a team that went to the elite eight of the NCAA tournament uh, really had a, a ton of success, a fun team to watch. Once again, kind of before we talk about the specifics of the success, um, if I talk to you prior to that season, uh, are you feeling pretty good that, that this team's got, got what it takes to, to put something together? Yeah, I thought we were pretty good again. Um, obviously, I didn't think we were better. You know, we, we were able to beat UConn, but I thought we were pretty good. I thought we were an NCAA team. Um, because the year before, I think we were ranked 20th in the country and we had the same team back. So I, I felt like, you know, we were an NCAA team, maybe win a game in the NCAA tournament, maybe win two if we were lucky. But I thought that we had the right kind of kids to be pretty good that year. And you mentioned the UConn. That was the Big East championship game, March 11th. I think it's at Rutgers, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was at Rutgers, correct. Yeah. Um, UConn. 
and everybody knows, you know, what UConn is now is what UConn was then. I think they had won 70 games in a row. And I've talked to you before, and you've told me a great story about the like the bus ride into play yeah. that game. And we talk about Shelly Pennyfather. Talk a little bit about uh, what what transpired as you guys are getting ready to try to, to slay the UConn Dragon. Yeah, it was, it's a really great story. And what made, what made it even funnier was that Doris uh, Burke um, told the story on ESPN before the game started. And, and the story goes like this, that uh, we were on the bus driving over to the game and my cell phone rings and it's Mrs. Pennyfather. And the reason she was calling me <clears throat> was because um, I think it was, I don't know whether it was, as it was CBS, it was CBS was doing, wanted to do a special on Shelly and they wanted to interview Mrs. Pennyfather and Mrs. Pennyfather, very, very, uh, you know, laid back. She doesn't really want to talk to anybody kind of person. And she had called me on the phone, just happened to call me at this time to say, Harry, I made a decision. I, you know, I don't want to talk to CBS, but my, my kids will. So this is literally on the bus ride over to the gym. And I'm like, okay, Mrs. Pennyfather, no problem. She goes, what are you doing? I said, well, actually right now I'm on the bus getting ready to go over and play UConn for the big East championship. And she started laughing. She goes, Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Blah, blah, blah. She goes, I, she goes, what I'll do is I'll call the convent and I'll leave a message that tell them to pray for you to win the game. So we get over to the game and see Doris Burke before the game, who's announcing the game. She's friends with Shelly from before, asking how Shelly's doing. So I tell her the whole story about the bus ride. So after the game's over, I guess she t- told the story on national television. And uh, what makes the story even more funnier was that that summer, I went down to visit Shelly. And she, when I walked in, she's like, Harry, did something happen that, that, I, that I don't know about or whatever? I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, back in March or, or whatever it was, April, you know, February or March, she said, we had people knocking on the front door that wanted to talk about, you know, the basketball game. And Mother Superior was like getting very angry. You know what I mean? She said they also were getting phone calls. You don't talk to anybody there. You leave a message. She goes, there was messages on the machine from different coaches, from different high school teams and college teams saying, would you please pray for us to win the championships? So I told her, I said, look, sister, I said, this is why it happened. I said, because Doris told the story on national television. So that was what made it even more funnier. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with former Villanova women's basketball coach, Harry Peretta, right after this. And we are back continuing our conversation with retired Villanova women's basketball coach, Harry Peretta. As far as the game's concerned, you guys are very good. UConn has, though, this aura of invincibility. What are you thinking going into this one? Because you had played them during the regular season, and they beat you, but they didn't beat you like they beat most teams. Well, they beat us by 20. And uh, and it was funny. We were only down nine with, um, I think it was like nine minutes to go in the game at UConn. And then they wound up hitting a couple shots and breaking it open. But the funny thing is that you mentioned that was I said to Joe Mullaney about after the game, we're riding home on the bus. I said, you know something, Joe? I said, I I know you think I might be crazy. I said, but it wouldn't be impossible for us to beat them on a good day. I said, because they're they're nowhere near as good as they were the year before. The year before they beat us by 50. And they had four kids that went to the WNBA 
first, second, third, and fourth draft choices. That's how good they were. So it was funny. I said that to him. I said, I don't think it's impossible. I said, is it hard? I said, yeah, but I don't think it's impossible. And the funny thing was when we beat them, we were down nine with nine minutes to go. I'll never forget it at Rutgers. And uh, Nicole Druckenmiller hits three threes in a row on three possessions. Now the next thing you know, the game's tied. And then we wound up going up like four or five and then holding on at the end. But it was really strange how you brought that up that, you know, we, we felt like going into the game that we could win the year before the kids knew they couldn't win. It's, it's a big difference. What is it like coaching down the stretch in a game like that? I would imagine how much of it is strategy and how much of it is just staying in the kids' heads. Let's stay on point. They're human just like we are. Let's do, let's run our sets. We're going to do our thing. What would, mm-hmm. What's the balance in a situation like that? I, I guess it's mostly like uh, 50-50, you know, like you have to be able to use strategy, which we were trying to do. Like ESPN was, when they when they broke the game down, there was no 10-second violation that back then, you know, for, for the backcourt. Well, we were taking 15 seconds just to get it over half court because we were trying to kill the clock as much as we could. So that strategy, and like you said, keeping the kids focused on, hey, focus on, like I kept telling them, don't worry about trying to win. Just try try to do what the best play is. Try to make the best play possible. I said, you can't worry about just winning and losing. I said, you'll lose focus that way. So that's all we were trying to do down the stretch was I was trying to keep in their heads about, hey, you know, focus that way. And I was trying to pick out things that we could run on offense to try to get an easy shot. Do you remember the (laughs) moment when you looked up and you kind of processed time, score, situation, and you were like, we're going to do this. Like, did you allow yourself or was it not until it's triple zeros and the the balls in the ref's hands? Am I going to accept that we're going to win this? I'll tell you when I it was really funny because the game was in doubt up until two seconds to go. They got called for a walk on an offensive rebound. We were up four. They were about to lay it in to make it a two point game and press us. They got called for a walk. And at that point, I said to Joe, I said, we we might win. And then we, we just threw the ball in bounds and they, they didn't foul us and the game was over. But but it wasn't until like two seconds ago that, that, that I felt that way. The celebration, the next 24, 48 hours, Villanova women's basketball is everywhere. Um, You're getting calls and requests from all over the country, if not beyond. What is that like? What is that, you know, the the two days after that like? That's exactly what it was like. You just said it was like calls from everybody. You really didn't sleep very much. Uh, You didn't care, though, at that time. Um, and then you're talking to all these different people. People are calling you. And th- what's really funny was it was about it must have been after it was after the, the uh, it was after the tournament was over. The NCAA tournament was over. And I was talking to uh, Pat Summit and I was like, you know, something, Pat, I don't think I could ever go through that again in terms of I said, I don't know how you and Gino do this. I said, I have no idea. I said, I couldn't do this on a regular basis. I would quit. And because it it was like so different, like the time is never yours, you know, and um, I just thought that that was an interesting thing. And like Gino and Pat were both my friends and I was able to talk to them about it. But I remember I remember that 
and the kids knew it too. Like there was some, those kids and I got along really well and they knew that I hated all this publicity stuff, you know? And one of the great stories was uh, we had just beaten Colorado to go to the elite eight and, you know, we go to the press conference and all that stuff. So Trish Jolene walks by me, we're out in the hallway and Trish says to me, we're really pissing you off now, aren't we? Because <laughs> they kept winning because she knew I hated it so bad. And so it was so funny. Like we had a great rapport, you know? I'm curious when you beat UConn and you mentioned Gino's a friend, what did he, was there, did he say anything to you after the game or was it just simply, Hey, congratulations. Best of luck. Was it, do you remember well, he, any conversation there? He was joking with me and all. And then he said to me, yeah, he goes, you stopped me from being immortal. Cause he, you know, they were talking about them breaking UCLA's record, you know? So, you know, it, it's fun to have somebody that's your friend that understands. And, you know, he, he was pretty good about it. And I'm curious, you guys make the run in the NCAA tournament. How much after you win a game like that and the program is on a pedestal and everybody's focusing on it, <clears throat> did you feel any extra pressure going into the NCAA tournament, specifically in that first round? Because I think St. Francis gave you some fits in that first oh, round. And absolutely. do you feel like I can't, we can't beat UConn to win a conference title and lose in the first round of the NCAA tournament? Yeah, it, it was different for us. You know, we were never in the position of being a favorite, you know. And, and I wasn't very much in, like, it wasn't since we had Shelly Pennyfather and Stephanie Gately and all those guys that we were always a favor. Since then we were always underdogs and it did add a lot of extra pressure. I remember those first couple games, you know, the first game, the second game, I remember how, how I felt it was different than the way I felt before. Cause we would always be an eight seed or, or, or a 10 seed or something like that. And you don't feel much pressure in those kind of games, but you're correct. You, you did feel some pressure and, I remember Dave Gavitt, again, I always reference him. He told me a long time ago um, about our style of basketball at Villanova. He says, look, Harry, he goes, your style of basket basketball at Villanova will give you a chance to upset teams. He says, but remember something. It also will give teams the opportunity to upset you. He says, because the way you play, you're not blowing people out. You're always keeping teams in the game. He says, so just remember that. And, and he was right. And he said to me, he goes, look, I'd rather do it the way you're doing it, too, because you'd rather be able to try to beat somebody good. He goes, but always remember you're letting other people in the game, too. You get to the Elite Eight that year and you play, you mentioned Pat Summit, you play Tennessee. What was it like for that group to within, I don't know, what, the, the date, three weeks, within three and a half weeks of each other, you play at what are at the time the two elite, cornerstone programs in the world in women's basketball in UConn and Tennessee. Yeah, it was cool. And, and the thing that made that cooler was the summer before that season is when Pat came up to Villanova to look at our offense and study our offense and Trish Jolene and all those guys got to meet her and everything. So they all knew her. And, you know, so it was kind of neat that, you know, we all knew we all people within the league all knew each other with Connecticut and then we knew people at Tennessee also. So it was kind of cool for myself and the kids on the team, like you said, to be able to play against the two, you know, highest programs in the country or in the world at the time. Just kind of going along with this and you kind of referenced, you know, what it was like after you beat UConn, you lose to Tennessee in the elite A. How exhausted are you when that's all, when it's all over, when it, that season's done? Yeah, I was really exhausted. I mean, I, uh, I, I just like basically for the next two weeks, just like 
didn't even go into work, just tried to relax and just try to get my body back from the, the, the stress that it was under from, from the tournament, you know? But, and that's why, like, I always give so much credit to, like, a Gino, a Pat, Dawn Staley, all those guys, because I don't think that people realize the pressure that they're under on a day-to-day basis. Like, we, I felt that pressure for one season, maybe two, in my whole career, and I almost quit coaching. You know, so it, it, it's amazing what, what it does to your body just in terms of stress, you know. I was going through getting ready for this and reading some articles written about you over the years, and I saw something that you preferred practice to the games. Is that true? Absolutely. I hated the games. Um, the, the, like practice to me was always the fun part, teaching kids and, you know, everybody playing hard and having fun, and we joke around and practice. The games like kind of interfered with that sometimes because you know you have not that you have to win, but people want you to win, and they're always talking about are oh, you going to win and people how many minutes playing time like all that stuff we get all into it where we're practiced you never worried about that stuff you just kind of like did your thing prepared practiced had fun played hard but like I said the games always interfered with that for me from when you started Villanova to when you retire. It seems to me as on the outside, as someone who's watched and covered, women's basketball has made a stratospheric change. As someone who was on the inside, how did the game, everything surrounding it, the attention, how much did that change over the four-plus decades you were head coach? Well, it changed dramatically. I mean, just the, uh, the media coverage is what changed the most, I thought, from the first years that we started. Um, you know, you know, then – you know, the more publicity you got, more people got more interested in women's basketball. And then more people started playing women's basketball, I think. And then we started spreading out the talent around the country. And then what happened was, like it did in men's basketball for a while, the teams that had the most money, the biggest budgets and things like that, they were the better teams. Where in the old days, again, with the local stuff, a local team could be really good without having a big budget. So, those were like the biggest changes, the media stuff and the budgets being put into some of the bigger programs. And I think that those were the biggest changes. How about the X and O's of the game? X's and O's, I think nowadays everything is more talent-based X's and O's, which I mean is um, more, more, more about the players making plays, uh, pick and roll, you know, post-up, ISOs. So it's more about that years ago when I first started, I think it was more about everybody wasn't as super talented. So we kind of like, you know, felt like we needed to do more motion, more back screens, more flat, like different kinds of things today. I think it's more talent-based offense. And I'm curious, we talked about when you start your 22 and you're so young, do you remember a point where you started to not think of yourself as a young coach anymore? Yeah, I don't really remember when I did. That's an interesting question because I've said to myself many times, like, at what point did I actually feel like I was like really involved in coaching, you know, because when you're 22, you think you're just way too young. And then when you're 60 something, you think maybe you're too old. But like, I don't remember the exact time where I started saying, wow, like I'm established now because you have to remember something. When I took over, I was around Rolly Massimino. Dave Gavitt, uh, Joe Mullaney Sr., John Thompson, 
uh, John Cheney. I met all these people, you know what I mean? Chuck Daly, Billy Cunningham, because they were friends with Roley. And through him, I met all these people. So to me, I was always the, the kid. I always thought of myself as the kid, you know, the kid that sat in the corner, kept your mouth shut and paid attention. So for a long time, that's the way I thought of it for a very long time. And you mentioned Roley and then obviously the success Jay Wright's had, you know, what was it like kind of working with a program next to, to icons like this, uh, you know, coaches that won national championships and stuff. And what did you learn from these guys? Well, like I said, I learned the most from Roley because, you know, you're young at that time. And, uh, you know, I learned the most from him. And, and the good thing about all the people that I mentioned, they always included you. It, it was so different. I don't know if it's different, but I don't want to compare then and now. All I know is they would include me. Like Roley would have me in his meetings in his office. Cheney would invite me to his practices, things like that. I mean, my relationship with Jay was always very good. But it wasn't like it was back then. Like back then, like you literally hung out with each other as, as things went on. You didn't do that as much anymore. You talked a lot like Jay and I would talk a lot during the day, but it wouldn't it wouldn't be as much on the court type stuff. You follow me? Mm-hmm. It's more like, hey, how you doing? You know, what do you think it is? What do you think of this kid? Blah, blah, blah. But in the old days, it was like crazy. You know, like I remember. Like I would be at Rolly's practices and we would be, dis- we would be discussing like the flex offense, like right in front of the team. And then, you know, I, I, I'd go to Cheney's practices and we would be discussing something on the court. Like you just don't do that today. Like I remember Larry Brown inviting me up to the Sixers training camp when he had Iverson and those guys, he brought me on the court to show him our zone offense at Villanova with, with Iverson and Coleman and those guys. Like you just don't do that anymore. You know, so that's what made it like a golden age for me with those guys. You've mentioned all these these great basketball names, Philadelphia area and beyond that. You, you've had the, the opportunity to work and, and deal with and, and become friends with. Is there anyone over your career that you, know, you would put at the top of the list that you were just kind of the most wide eyed that you were able to to get access to and treated you as a peer? Was there anybody that. Uh, you just, you like, you would have moments like, I can't believe I'm talking to this coach. I, I, I would always say that about Rolly because that was my, the first guy. Like, here I am, I'm 22 years old off the street and he doesn't have to even say boo to me if he doesn't want to, you know? And he took me in and made me, he, he just made me one of his family, you know? So that was always the big one, you know? Now the other people, I, I would be sitting at Cheney's practice saying to myself like, I can't believe John Cheney asked me, you know, but I didn't know him as well. Uh, Larry Brown, when he invited me to the Sixers training camp. Um, so John Thompson, when we were down at Georgetown, you know, you know, back in the day, like those guys didn't talk to any outsiders, you know, or many outsiders. And when we would go to Georgetown, Thompson would talk to me and people would be like, he talks to you. They couldn't believe it. I said, well, I, I kind of my associate head coach, Joe Mullaney, his father coached Thompson at, at, at uh, Providence. And through him, I got to be friendly with, with, with Thompson. So it was more Roley was like the guy on a day-to-day basis. You know what I mean? I think that's the best way to put it. What was it like being a part of the big five and playing big five games? It was really weird. And, and it was really funny because I had said something to the president. We had a dinner about three months ago and I told him, I said, father, I said, I always wanted to win a big five game more than I wanted to win a big East game. 
And he, he was like, well, you know, he's yelling at me and all. And I was like, to me, it was like the old days I got, that meant more to me than the big East. And, and I, and I was always a member of the big East too, but the, the Philadelphia games just meant a lot to me for some reason. And to that point, and I think I know the answer, but I'd love to dig into one of those. How much fun, how much did you relish being a part of the Philadelphia basketball community beyond just the, the Villanova? Well, like I said, it was really cool. Like, um, you know, I was playing, we played golf in the, in the spring with Jimmy Lynham and Herbie McGee, who I, who I had known for years back in the day. Um, and it, it's just like a really cool thing that you're talking to all these people on a regular basis. And to me, that's what made it really special for me. Like all these Philadelphia basketball icons that I was able to associate myself with and learn from, like you said, and, you know, get bits and pieces from everybody. So to me, it was really, really cool that I could, I could call up, you know, somebody and say, Hey, like I was down at LaSalle in the summer. I think we went down in June and I gave a clinic to to the men and women's team at LaSalle. So that's kind of like a cool thing to do for me. What do you miss about not coaching now, now being retired? Are there big things you, that you just, you'll sit back and go, man, I, I wouldn't mind doing that one more time or stuff like that practices are still are still on my list like i like last year i couldn't really go to anybody's practice because of the COVID. Uh, i and i missed it even more now this year i think hopefully i'll get my fill by being able to go to some team's practice that's what i miss the most uh like i'm going to volunteer assistant uh for one of my former players at a division three school this year so she just got the job so it, that'll enable me to go to practice two or three times a week and uh, that I think that'll really satisfy whatever urge I had that I missed that. And you mentioned, you know, because of the pandemic, things were weird. But were you able to watch any Villanova last year, even on TV? And was it weird? You know, it wasn't as weird as I thought it would be. I saw most of the game. I saw all the games either on the computer or live. I could go to some of the games live. Um and it was a little bit weird, but not as much as I thought it would be. It was really interesting because I had told you before, I was so happy not to be down there on the court coaching the game that it, I didn't miss it that much because that was the part that I really disliked. And I don't, it, it's re- kind of weird. Like oh, a lot of people don't understand it. I just really, it, the day of the game was like brutal for me. It was, it was I wouldn't eat. Uh, I would sit in my office with the lights out. I mean, it was, it was weird the day of the games. And, and I, I don't miss that. And so even last year when I'm watching the game, all I'm saying to myself is, thank God I'm not there coaching it. This girl who I'm going to help, Diane Decker, Lebanon Valley is the name of the school. And I said to her, I said, look, I, I want something in writing that if you get sick, that I absolutely am not going to have to coach the game. I said, I just want it in some kind of writing. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's how much I don't want to coach the games anymore. Denise Dillon, one of your former players, one of your former great players, is now the head coach, took over after you retired. What's it like having a player or somebody you coached take over the program that you ran for so long? It's kind of a really cool thing. From a personal standpoint, it's cool because you feel like you taught her. And from, I guess, a wider standpoint for the whole Villanova family, I think it's a good thing because all the players that played like, I guess it was like 
I was the one that was there all the time and they came through and now Denise is a former player. So it's like a sorority, you know, they, they all have something in common. And I think for me, like I said, from a personal standpoint, it's cool because I taught her. It's like my daughter. But but on the wider scope, it's like happy for all the people that played at Villanova. They feel like one of their sisters now is coaching the team. And we've talked about a lot of your success, you know, games and players. What are when you look back at kind of the the broad painting of your career, what are you most proud of? I guess I'm most proud of uh, the graduation rate rate that we had and players went on to really do some really good things afterwards. You know, I've had a Rhodes Scholar play for me. Um, I've had like tons of nurses, doctors, lawyers. Um, you know, it's kind of, that's cool to me that, uh, you know, you can I can call somebody up on the phone if I don't know about something. And I can always call somebody that knows about it that played for me. And um to me, that's what was really special. I mean, the winning and the losing, again, I go back to Dave Gavitt. He told me a long time ago, he says, Harry, all you can try to do each year is make your team try to be better than the sum of its parts from a talent standpoint. He says, then you're going to win X amount of games and you're going to lose X amount of games. He says that, and, and it, he goes, unfortunately, society won't let us think that way because we have to think about always winning. He said, but in reality, that's what it's all about. So so in reality, what you should be worried about is what the kids become as human beings afterwards down the road. He, he always said that winning and losing gets in the way. And he was right. Harry Peretta, thanks so much for taking the time. This was great. All right, thanks. I appreciate it. Talk to you. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank the great Harry Peretta, who retired as Villanova University women's basketball coach back in 2020 for being our guest this week. If you like this show and you want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check in again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about. 